0: we got a little feedback on the brexit episode you guys
1: i love hearing from i love hearing from listeners so if you've got feedback yeah know about it
2: yeah totally
0: actually we got a lot of feedback for that episode in general a lot of people liked it a lot of people had things to say they didn't necessarily agree 100 percent, but it started a lot of conversation And then uh, there were there was one person in particular that said we got a few things wrong. And so uh, we just thought that perhaps it'd be time to issue some corrections. or That's what I was thinking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. You got to stop. We got things wrong.
2: Uh, It was it was it was a few kind of things. It, It was some minor things. We'll get into it. This was a fan that said, I mean, like, we're the hosts of the show.
0: Well, that, I mean, but that's, you know, sometimes we're not going to be 100% accurate. Like, we're just doing our best to stay informed and stay on the pulse.
1: Yeah. I know we made, like, one mistake during the show, but I feel like that's a little bit nitpicky.
2: We're we're politics of forgiveness, and you got to ask for it. Let's just get into it a little
0: bit, okay? We we described uh, some kind like, a Brexit, quote-unquote, bus, and it was actually a Brexit warplane. Mm,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. All right. I just went on the the Twitter picture. I mean, it looked very bus like, but I could be wrong.
2: Yeah, it it was kind of an old it was an old warplane that had been modified to look like a bus. It it was really weird. And Boris Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson was trying to get some contacts in the aviation museum. Some some money again. There's a lot of kind of weird history going on there. But yeah, it was a Brexit warplane.
0: On the subject of Boris, uh, minor correction, Um, we, we described him as a human being. He is actually a
2: walrus, we have learned. Yeah, there was a recent kind of DNA test and he, the, the DNA is- 50% walrus,
0: something yeah, like that? Yeah, it's
2: more consistent with walruses than humans in certain areas. The geneticists are still working at it. But yeah, uh, we formally apologize to any humans offended by the instantiation that Boris Johnson is one of them. Yes.
1: Um, I think there was a mention of of chicken vindaloo being a British delicacy. Mm. Yeah, and of course that is not food. Uh, That is actually Mm -hmm. a form of psychological warfare that's used to break prisoners of war. Uh, It was invented in the 1940s, not exactly during World War II, but, you know, during the run up, Neville Chamberlain, he saw some shit coming and he said, listen, I know I look like a coward, but we've got to be really well prepared to break these incoming POWs. And it turned out Chicken vindaloo was what the, the scientists in mm-hmm. MI6 came up with. And I didn't know. I thought that was one mistake, you know, kind of a nitpick, but it technically yeah. is not meant for humans.
0: And then character. later MK Ultra would be in an, an, an attempt to recreate
2: Chicken vindaloo. yeah. Chicken <laughs> yeah they really got they really got focused on uh on lSD.
0: Yeah, I think the thing to remember here is just that we, we do our best. And we, we we may not always be 100% accurate, especially when we talk about international topics. Even though we kind of describe this as an American politics podcast, and 90% of our episodes are more about American politics, we really think it's important to look at stuff that's going on outside of America, because we don't just exist in like a political vacuum.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of things happening around the world that impact what's happening over here.
0: Yeah, or They have entwined history, which is like the case of kind of like the Hong Kong situation.
1: Yeah, history is one of those things where you make one mistake and that mistake, well, we're calling these things mistakes. They're often just malicious acts, but they can stand for decades or hundreds of years after that initial event, especially when you're talking about China, where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very much steeped in history. And some of the stuff that's going on in China's national psychology stretches back to like the opium wars
0: oh and even further
1: it's hard to really understand the context of the situation unless you have been there and know what's going on or have at least read a book and that's one of the reasons why like russian intelligence officers often had problems when they were trying to analyze intelligence about shit that happened over here because they didn't have all the cultural context you talk about the united states that's a country that's like 200 years old so when we start talking about china that effect is magnified by a thousand, especially with regular ass people that listen to this podcast, and they don't know shit about dick, right? Sure.
0: <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people, you know, they might kind of like see Hong Kong in a headline and think like, "Well, why do I care?" Mm-hmm. You know, probably like most of us. I, I mean, everybody. We all see stuff in the news that we're like, you know, there's so much stuff. You have to decide kind of what to filter in and out.
2: Caring is a limited quality, and you gotta you gotta pick and choose, really.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. But I think that Hong Kong is something that as an American, or probably as a European are definitely a, if you live in China, and you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> you should care about. Uh, but definitely, like I think a lot of people in America, like I say, they don't necessarily realize it. But Hong Kong's history and our own have some really deep connections, and their political destiny and our own could also be connected in some ways. Mm hmm.
1: That's a very interesting thought. So how is what's going on in in Hong Kong? uh, How do you see that like directly affecting what's going on over here? Because usually like there's kind of a rubbernecking aspect when it comes to foreign uh, affairs where it's like, wow, it's really fucker it's very rare that we think, oh, it's fucked up over there and it's a reflection of what's going on over here. Mm -hmm.
0: I think, like, there's a lot of ways to look at the connection and I definitely want to get into the history, but even just looking at kind of the right now lens, Hong Kong's political destiny is tied into the political destiny of the UK and the political destiny of the UK is tied into the political destiny of the US and Canada, especially Canada, but also the US. So, with that in mind like yeah there's kind of like this chain of connection also Hong Kong is sort of this unusual doorway into a somewhat guarded world uh where China is a lot of China kind of exists behind these walls, you know, which is a little bit of a joke, haha. but also like sort of these these information walls where like, a lot of people outside of China, like we don't necessarily really know that much about what's going on there all the time. And people within China are also being misled about what's happening in their own country. And Hong Kong has served as this sort of portal between China and the outside world that has allowed the exchange of politics, the of information the exchange of money so economically it's super important
2: and from the beginning I mean the city was taken as a uh, as a treaty port and I think it was the first opium wars uh, as a a way to facilitate British goods flowing in and out of China
0: yes so let's get into the history uh, because this is all really tied into American history again in ways I don't think a lot of people understand because It all starts with tea, you know, tea in the UK and tea across Europe becomes a popular drink, right?
1: Obviously, like the East India Company was very influential on that, if I recall.
0: Yes, Um, yes. And the East India Trading Company, by the way, like something that we could probably talk about more than one episode worth. But just to talk about them for one second and give you one fact, if you've never heard before, you really need to. They were worth more than anybody today, like any corporation today. Like Walmart didn't come close. Amazon, no way. East India had more money than any of those people. And so you have to think about, like, we talk about the impact that, like, these billionaires, like the Koch brothers, like Jeff Bezos, these people are able to have on our politics, on our economy. Well, multiply that times 10. That's the impact that the East India Trading Company had on the British economy and on British politics.
1: In a real sense, the East India Company was the the trade arm of the british empire i mean everything that they did was very closely tied together
2: uh, these sort of specu- these sort of um speculative colonial companies really did have big sway in the uh in the mercantilist colonialist economy i mean uh have you guys heard of the uh south sea company
0: yeah yeah another big one
2: Yeah, the the South Sea Company was essentially something that uh, it it was a it was a cleverly executed like 11 year long scam that scammed the entire British economy out of uh, millions and millions of dollars, got the whole government in a ring of corruption, all, all backed on the promise of an East India like company that operated in the Caribbean. That was um, because of the wars and uh, various entanglements that England was in at the time. The operation of such a company would be impossible, (laughs) but still like the 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 promise of that, the promise of a company like the East India Company, a company with that kind of power. Uh, was able to bring the the UK economy in the 17 in the early 1700s to its knees. So like, yeah, the the power of these sorts of government backed colonial corporate enterprises is not to be underestimated.
0: Yeah, it was incredible, the power that they wielded. And even that Caribbean, that whole Caribbean thing that you're describing, this still relates to the whole tea obsession, because here's the thing. Tea didn't really it started out as more of a, a kind of a delicacy, something for connoisseurs, so to speak. Because you know, if you drink tea straight, it's it's a little bit unpalatable to a lot of people. But what do most people put in tea, right? Come on, y'all. Oh, milk, cream, sugar. Yes. Milk and sugar, right? Okay. Milk, not super hard to come by in terms of like you can raise some milkable animal almost anywhere, but sugar that's a little bit special. And so the production of sugarcane, which led to a lot of the birth of the African slave trade into the Americas, is all tied into tea. And so this is just how mm-hmm. deeply connected all these histories
2: are here at this intersection. I know I've been getting in a lot of these fun facts, but um, do you know that uh, South Carolina was originally founded because... Um, uh, slave slave owning or plantation owners from Barbados who were growing sugar thought that Barbados was too hot. Uh, so they moved to South Carolina to start a new colony to grow their sugarcane. And if you've ever been to South Carolina, you'd know that, it, you know, it's not really, a, it's not really an upgrade from Barbados.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: uh, wild. Very rude. There are some people from South Carolina that listen to this podcast and they believe that they are better than Barbados. <laughs> just a little bit.
2: That's like a very specific rivalry that probably only like three people have. I don't know if that's true.
1: They play college football once a year.
2: Oh, zap. Yeah, man. Hmm. They do it in Miami,
0: so it's a neutral field. The rival, the rivalry lives on. See, all this political stuff, it's still
1: going on. Yeah, man.
0: <laughs> South
1: Carolina-Barbados is a game. South Carolina u- usually loses. I don't think they're hungry enough, but, you know, it's fine. But
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Go continue. (laughs) Yeah. So, so tea with stuff in it, tea with sugar and milk, that became very popular and like really swept Europe in general, but in particular, the UK as this extremely popular craze. And of course, it's caffeinated. Caffeine's addictive. So, you know, once you start drinking tea, you don't really want to stop.
1: Of course not. I mean, we don't want to stop drinking coffee. Right. Right. You work extra as an excuse to drink more fucking
0: coffee. Yeah. So, you know, the the demand became very, very high. And so, you know, the East India Company was basically importing tea from China into the UK at this extremely rapid rate. But the problem is, is that they were having trouble finding anything to export to China because the reality of the UK is that, like, what actual resources do they have to offer anybody? (laughs)
2: It kind of lines up that a that a tiny island with almost no natural resources of its own was the one to to found the the largest colonial empire just because they wanted shit and didn't have it. I mean, I mean, you think about Germany, like the uh, the, the industrial heartlands of Germany, they, they had a lot of coal, they had a lot of iron. They, they only had so many colonies, uh, Britain, they had piss all. So they had they had to fucking get out and travel the world for uh, for to steal other people's shit because they didn't have any
0: just loot everything with that kind of thought in their mind, there will always be another land to loot. And then eventually there wasn't. To quote (laughs)
2: Margaret Thatcher wrongly, uh, the problem with imperialism is that you eventually run out of other people's countries. (laughs) Right. So they didn't have an export that China wanted.
0: And... Like Leia you kind of got into like the South Sea company and like there were all these reasons why the economy in the UK was really volatile at this time so they they couldn't just like buy tea and not sell anything forever. that was not an option. And so what they found was uh, opium taking opium from India, where they had lots of colonial activity, lots of control over India, you know, they, they started like, basically turning the opium thing into from this more casual kind of cultural thing that wasn't necessarily done as like major drug manufacturing. And they came in and they said, we're turning this into an industry. So now in, India is capable of producing all this opium, which is in high demand in China, And now they've got something to work with. But obviously, being a a gigantic drug cartel doesn't endear you to other countries. You don't say.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they should have exported telenovelas. (laughs) You know, rise to power of the British Empire. People would have been like, cool, we want to be the guys getting shot in these movies. I mean, that's how it works over here in America. Of course, we also like have bread and shit like that. But, you know,
0: But it is worth thinking about, like, in the context of how do people talk about and think about Mexican drug cartels and Mexico or Colombian drug cartels in Colombia? Here we go with the like, Britain was literally the world's biggest drug cartel at this
2: time. Right, correct, correct. correct. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah,
0: like they themselves have their own history of doing this same shit to get that paper when they needed it, to get that tea, which is what they were personally addicted to.
1: The world did eventually find something that the Chinese wanted to buy. They they were really interested in
0: it. The free market decides, you know. The free
1: market really got in here and fucked China up real nice and good
0: yeah so opium becomes an e- an epidemic in china after this obviously you know we we know what happens uh when cheap drugs flood a market that have a lot of appeal the way opiates do you know we're experiencing that right now in america
2: so 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 what, we're, what you're what you're trying to say is that britain was just one big pharmaceutical company but in the 1800s
0: Uh, Well, combination of Britain and India, because India was doing the actual work.
2: (laughs) You know, they were the ones growing the opium, harvesting it, processing it, turning it into opium, and they were growing the poppies, rather. Uh, And and colonialism for opium still fucking happens, dude.
0: Yeah, it's still wrapped up in, like, Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, yeah, and the CIA, I remember reading that the CIA either, like, controls or supervises uh, a a lot of the opium production in Afghanistan, like, uh, Mm -hmm. keeps an eye on it. Yeah, keeps an eye on it, quote-unquote. Yeah, you know, it's like, (laughs) it hasn't really changed since then. Like, governments are just organized crime rings, and sometimes they dabble in drugs.
0: I don't know if I would say that they're just organized crime rings, but I think that the way, what I would say is that the way that governments operate, the way that crime rings operate, it's not that different a lot of the time. Yeah. In terms of like a big crime ring also has to be like organized and like a lot of times like, you know, nominate or select or elect leaders in some fashion. And you know what I mean? Like anything that's sufficiently big.
2: You know, Donald Trump very well could have been like, not like a character of Donald Trump, but like actually Donald Trump, like 30 years ago could have been the, uh, the successor to the, the successor to the Don in like a shitty direct to DVD Godfather sequel. (laughs) You come on to this day on the eve of my daughter's wedding. Very shame. Very much a shame. She's not getting married to me, but alas, she's getting married to someone else.
0: Uh, Maybe with a Home Alone crossover thrown in, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's his hotel. The the hotel in Home Alone is, is the hub of the crime ring. The Sticky and Wet Bandits are on the payroll of Donald Trump's crime ring. But 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 Trump Trump wanted to get rid of them, so so he gave uh, so, so he gave covert assistance to Kevin McAllister in order in, in order to, to get rid of the organization's shittiest members. That that being the stick and wet, sticky and wet bandits.
0: Wait, is Kevin McAllister Q?
2: Holy fucking shit! We might be onto something here. <laughs> Kevin McAllister has been on the Trump teams on the since the ground floor. <laughs> when, tr- when Trump was running his crime ring out of the Paradise Hotel in New York City. Kevin
0: McAllister gravel-tined him. He was like, hey, I'm going to get you into politics. What do you say, old man? <laughs> <The> r-
2: <laughs> right-wing uh, mir- mirror reality gravel teens. It all clicks. It all comes together. It makes perfect sense. Down the hall and to the left was the world's first cue uh, uh, message. <laughs> oh, my God. You heard it first here folks. Kevin McAllister is Q. Kevin McAllister is Q. Go rewatch
0: Home Alone. It'll all make sense, specifically the second one, but, but probably rewatch the first two.
2: Right. D- down the hall into the left. Here's what it means. The hall means the halls of power, the halls of go- uh, the halls of government. And to the left means that there is going to be a problem from the left that needs to be dealt with. So down the hall into the left means there is a problem in the left. There will be a problem in the left wing of government that needs to be solved. It all, it all, it all lines up. The, the, the astro planes, the astro planets are, are aligning. And Kevin McAllister is fucking i I'm telling you. Is this
1: going to be another episode of of the show where we just talk about Home Alone-based conspiracy theories? (laughs) I'm just very glad that Q is not, like, hacking into the show right
2: now. Yeah. Confirmed by these rumors. I I do think Q has that power. That's terrifying. We We need to release a commentary track of Home Alone 2 that just talks about the QAnon implications. That'll be coming
0: uh very soon. Very
2: soon. You remember the bird lady from Home Alone 2? The the lady with like a fuck ton of pigeons and shit? That represents the storm. And each of the birds is is, is an individual member of the of, of the QAnon crew. Because it's, you know, where we go one, we go all. So you you're a pigeon in the employ of the bird lady who is associated with Q strongly because uh, because the bird lady, the bird lady gave some life lessons to to Kevin McAllister, who is Q. And the bird lady is 4chan. The bird lady is 4chan. And <laughs> she she managed yes, exactly. You're getting it. She <laughs> manages all of the little birds who, who are the, the various followers of QAnon. Birds, breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs, QAnon posts. It's all co- it's all fucking coming together.
0: This this all makes a lot of sense. Audience, if you want to hear every detail of this conspiracy theory, stay tuned for our Home Alone 2 read along. Yeah. Conspiracy breakdown audio track. Definitely coming.
2: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Oh, where were we?
1: we were talking about opium. We were talking about opium and then shit got weird. Shit
0: got real weird. I can't believe we got from opium to home alone two Just
2: now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. How long was that? Cause run might have to cut down some Hong Kong stuff to make way for, for the home alone two piracy talk. No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We got time for all of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so opium, it's still, it's still a thing. Like we were saying, it's still a thing today. Uh, Part of the Afghanistan, the the endless quagmire of Afghanistan engagement that we can never, ever, 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 ever leave. And even if we talk about leaving it, we can only talk about leaving it on the worst terms possible so that even liberals turn against it. That's that's still tied up in this some of the same issues that stretch back into the formation of Hong Kong, which is the acquisition of opium. So after opium becomes like the big thing to export to China, obviously, like I said, you know, we know what happens in America when you suddenly have like an opioid crisis. Like we're having one right now, okay? So a lot of us right now in America, we're saying, hey, We got to hold somebody accountable for this opioid crisis. We got to do something about it. That's what they did in China during this period of trade with the East India Company. You know, the people and the government to different extents kind of stood up and said, hey, this opiate problem is is real.
1: It's real and it's real bad. Yeah. But the problem was they did not have really the military power to back that idea up.
0: No, they couldn't just throw the UK out, um, as we'll kind of get into in a minute.
1: They had been so walled in economically that they were not totally prepared for that situation of every country in the world just pulling up to their doorstep Mm -hmm. and going, well, we got to do some trading and this is what we're going to trade for.
0: Yeah. So even though China was really big, standing up to the UK was a big deal because the UK had this incredible technological superiority. And that was In fact, sort of, you know, demonstrated by just their trading companies in the first place, like the boats that they were using were better than what a lot of the rest of the world had developed and things like that. And so like it was concerning to want to stand up to this at the same time too, like China's making money hand over fist off the UK because they're exporting tea and the East India Company also made a lot of money off a lot of stuff coming out of China that you may not immediately think of, but like plates. You know, we still talk about like fine china as like a quality of dishware and that's where this starts.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely.
0: So China's making bank off the UK. So kicking them out is not like an easy proposition. But eventually, it becomes like dire to do so basically, because according to like a couple of the sources I've read about this, uh, at one time, as much as like close to 25% of Chinese men were like using opium regularly.
2: Yeah, that is uh, a problem. A devastating number.
0: Yeah, that is like your society could fall apart over this shit kind of numbers. Yeah. (laughs) And Chinese women could have been just as bad or worse. We honestly don't know necessarily because of the documentation around men because they were like the primary working class was more significant, you know. And so like, you know, it's one of those kind of like sexism kind of quiet Sort of like the you know, the quiet alcoholism of women is something that gets talked about now. Well, this could have, you know, I think according to some sources I've looked at, this could have been a problem there as well. Sort of like the quiet uh, at home opium addict wife uh, might have been just as big of a problem or even bigger. We may never know for sure.
2: Like the like the 50s uh, housewife loaded on barbiturates to get through her shitty husband, (laughs) her failed marriage and her terrible children. Yes.
0: So this was an incredible epidemic. So they had to do something. So China did go to war with the UK over this. Well, what they did specifically, they didn't start the war militarily. They started it economically. They closed the ports.
1: They ended up going to war with practically the entire world. I mean, it wasn't just the UK. Yeah.
0: I can't remember for sure if they closed all the ports before the war really started, but I know the the major insight one of the major inciting incidents was the the Kowloon incident, so we should probably talk about that. That's like where a lot of this kind of it's funny how these major major conflicts a lot of times they get started over something small. Yeah, I, that's again something that relates to our current news with like the whole posturing of America against Iran thing. You know, we've been threatening to start wars with them over things that are very very small.
2: Like we like we were just talking about in our. um just two episodes ago, uh, if you so much as cough in the in the wrong direction of the U.S., they'll, they'll go to war with you. <laughs> right.
1: And the stakes for this particular confrontation were very high.
2: Yes. Um, and this particular incident is very,
0: I mean, it's very incendiary. In, in, in China, like this was their first time dealing with mass drug
1: addiction on a large scale. This was like any country's first time dealing with drug addiction on a large scale. So the, it wasn't no say no to drug programs. They didn't know how to do treatment. Like, like
2: the, 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 the concept of a social awareness program against anything was un, was a relative unknown.
0: Yeah, they certainly weren't, like, all going to school and hearing a message of, like, say no to drugs or be careful around drugs or anything
2: like that. They weren't even going to school in most cases. You didn't have a 19th century uh, Qing Empire D.A.R.E. programs. <laughs> right, yeah. Say no to opium.
0: Officer Randy from the local police department's here to tell you about opium. <laughs> you know like, <laughs> It's
2: bad,
1: folks. It's real it's bad. bad.
0: Real bad.
1: Making some songs, sing the no opioid pledge. All that bullshit.
0: We might think a lot of our like drug addressing or drug treatment in our society is bad, but it's still better than absolute nothing. That's true too. And that's kind of, yeah, like, like Brandon was saying, like this, they had this epidemic and absolutely no resources to really handle it or absorb it. So the Kowloon incident ends up being like one of the major inciting moments that kind of pushes everything over the edge towards like actual conflict. There's a lot of like, like I was saying, kind of economic back and forth, like threatening to close ports, closing ports, opening ports kind of stuff, you know, Britain and China yelling at each other. But this is like sort of the first violent action these American and British sailors ar- arrive in Kowloon. They're searching for provisions. They get drunk and they kill somebody. And one of the administrators for the region, or maybe the emperor—I think it's just administrator—I can't remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was the Lin Zizhu. Uh, was the the administrator for the province at the time. He wants to try these guys in Chinese courts, right? Because like they killed a Chinese man in China.
1: You think that would do it under most circumstances?
0: (laughs) You'd really think. And they even had this law to back them up.
1: Yeah. This is another situation where we're talking about shit from the opium wars that still extends to now. I mean, if a private company kills a few people in Iraq... We still have these same concerns about who is responsible, where is the court,
2: who's in charge of what extra extra territoriality is still like a a thing. Yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. So they even had this Swiss law that they cited that was supposed to kind of like give them jurisdiction over foreigners, you know, that were operating in their area. And the UK is like, nah, you can't try our dudes. Fuck that. And just like nothing ever really happens to them. Like they never face any consequences. Like as I understand, it, they were given prison terms, but they were never like actually. They never were actually forced to serve them. Like it was all like a, a like a show trial was done basically. Mm-hmm. This is roughly really equivalent to being sentenced to time in your room to think about it, or being
2: sentenced to paid time <laughs> off. You know?
0: Yeah, it's like the paid time off. Th-
2: that officer is currently under review and has a uh, and is currently under paid administrative leave.
0: Right, and so a ship tries to run a blockade to a banned port like not that long after this and with tensions already so high, like the Chinese Navy is just not having it and the British Navy is posturing really aggressively and so it just all goes wrong really fast. And that's Mm -hmm. where the opium wars basically start British government formally goes to war not long after and like their technology is just so far ahead of what China has in general that China's just fucked in this war, basically.
1: Uh, and that's some shit that still weighs on the psychology over there. Even though it was everybody involved is dead now. Which makes it funny like, hey, Jim Crow was 20 years ago. Get over it, you guys. China's literally still dealing with the opium wars.
0: Yeah. Like, this is as real to them as slavery is to us. And it's connected
2: also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's still real in, in China. And in their the legacy Yeah,
0: especially because with the technological superiority that the British had, like China had a lot of losses and the British had very few overall in these conflicts. And so this is like very tragic and awful for China. And it's adding a tragedy on top of a existent tragedy. And the British seem to be like barely feeling it. It's just a very like sad situation.
2: Right. So uh, do you think we can kind of fast forward to what's happening in kind of China now? Uh, with the Hong Kong protests?
1: Let's go to, like, how was Hong Kong established in that post-war area?
2: Yeah, let's just
0: get into that a little bit, yeah. They try to negotiate with the British a few times. It doesn't always go well, so, like, the conflict kind of goes back and forth for a while. Then finally, in 1842, you have the Treaty of Nanking, which is, like, the cornerstone of the formation of Hong Kong. And so, yeah, it's basically, they opened a bunch of points ports but they actually ceded the island of hong kong to the british britain now controls it as of 1842 and they control it from then until 1997 like that didn't just like end yesterday (laughs) i mean it did basically is what i'm saying sorry the other way around it's like it didn't just like it that that didn't end like a while ago that ended like a few days ago practically in historical terms yeah 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 so when this is where we get into the modern day because when Uh, Britain gives up control of Hong Kong in 1997, it sort of goes back to China, but in this sort of mixed way. Very
1: slow. Like a 50-year handoff.
0: So (laughs) extremely gradual. (laughs) Although when you think about it, we are, because it's 1997, we are like almost halfway through the handoff now.
1: Yeah, and China is starting to assert itself. And the problem is like China is asserting itself in a way that the people who are there in Hong Kong
2: may not like. Yeah, they've maintained this sort of. Uh, it's like it's called one country, two systems. I think. Right. That can't last. Well. Yeah. Just j- just like the ninety-nine year lease was uh, was going to be like uh, in the British mind was like, oh yeah, ninety-nine years—that's basically forever. Yeah. Turns out it's not. And now right. the and now this sort of weird halfway system between the Chinese system and Western capitalist democracy—that's it's not going to last forever either.
0: This all hinges, too, on the fact that, like, the people of Hong Kong, like, again, this was ruled by Britain for, like, 150 years, and it was sort of independent even for a lot of that time um, and sort of had its own culture and its own things going on. And so people in Hong Kong don't really feel Chinese. Like, this is what the polls are saying anyway, uh, is that, like, when they're polled about it, most people in Hong Kong say they're Hong Kongers. They're not Chinese. Yeah.
1: But here's the thing, though. Y'all are talking about like how this handoff is going to work. Do y'all think that this system that's going on in Hong Kong should last forever? I know that's kind of a rough question because like basically what I'm getting at is it's a hard question because you're kind of deciding between anti-authoritarianism and anti-imperialism. So China is obviously an authoritarian state. But do you want to assert your will on China? in order to make it more liberal or fit the values of the West more? If so, how? If not, how not? So basically, West y'all's ideal solution to this situation that isn't like China should just decide to ease up? And just take a, take a doobie, chill
0: out. That's obviously not going to happen.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, sort of the, 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 the most, the the best solution in my mind would be there, there's a great opportunity for the people of Hong Kong to assert an alternative to both systems, one that's more free and more equal than either of them put together, but i I don't really see that happening yeah that that, that that's kind of the ideal though yeah in art- an alternative is articulated because recently. Capitalism has not really had a definable alternative articulated, and uh, the same can really be said of the of, of Chinese authoritarianism, where and the the weird kind of fusion government they have going on there, where a good alternative has not really been articulated to them apart from Western capitalistic democracy. That's that that's my ideal solution. A more a better solution. That's not a better solution, but one that's maybe more achievable. The real motherfucker, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we we really do be living in a society, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, is that the the protesters achieve their demands of uh, sort of evicting China out of Hong Kong? Uh, maybe as a matter of practicality, they achieve they get some level of we- of kind of Western capitalistic support. To keep the Chinese, uh, keep the Chinese government at bay. And then hopefully that spirit of authoritarianism and resisting inequality drives Hong Kong politics in a more leftward direction. Once the government has fully been kind of liberalized. And then it's more it's 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 a it's a much longer process towards a a more ideal society and one that a lot of Western capitalist nations are going through some sort of stage right now. But that's that's kind of my take. And that's kind of my ideal hope and my honest hope. I don't have I don't have a take. I don't have an
1: ideal hope. I I feel like China is like. They have too much to lose. I feel like if they let one area off the hook for wanting a more liberal reform, they're going to have to liberally reform their entire society. Because you got to remember, China, very large population density. There's enough people to lock down any city anywhere, practically, right? Yeah. So what are they going to be doing to stop the potential for a liberal revolution, even if it's not a, like a American liberal revolution, but like a reformist revolution? You know what I'm, what I'm trying to say?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You kind of like touched on a really good point that like they're kind of caught in a hard place, you know, between a rock and a hard place with like imperialism on one side and anti-imperialist authoritarianism on the
2: other side the chinese the chinese government is imperialist that's true yeah that's true Ch- Ch- china is, is imperialist yeah they're course. being imperialist in hong kong and they're being imperialist in africa
0: everything is imperialist from the outside but the 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 question is the question is i'm just saying that like every country that involves itself in another country is being imperialist towards somebody else no, there's a difference between
1: trade and like setting up factories and work camps in other countries
2: or trying to yeah. undermine their markets and shit. Like T-try, trying to d- do the sort of I, a, emotional investment.
0: I agree. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Will it hear me out. Because here's the problem. What I mean by... Anti-imperialist in this sense is really it has to do with the economic situation, because the problem is if Hong Kong has no support from China, they will be forced to just allow Western companies to just run Hong Kong. Like, mm. that's what I'm trying to get at. If, if they have no support from China at all, then Western countries, which already have a huge amount of influence on Hong Kong, are just going to take it over completely. And it's going to become a situation where Hong Kong is going to become even more of sort of this manipulated economy, kind of in the way that like South Korea is heavily manipulated by the by Western influences And a lot of the actual South Koreans, like most South Koreans have like no real power over their economy. And it's all being decided by people who don't live there.
2: So really what uh, what we're it's facing here is a choice between red imperialism under China and corporate imperialism under the Western capitalist corporations.
0: Yes, that might be a better way to put it.
1: You're, we're basically saying the whole Hong Kong situation is very much an alien versus predator kind of situation.
2: basically <laughs> Hong Kong lives in a society. Hong Kong is a society. <laughs> it is a society oh. this this says a lot it really says a lot about our society.
0: Yeah, I think the ideal situation, honestly, is that China would have to relinquish control, not just of Hong Kong, but just in general, because the problem with the Hong Kong situation, the reason why the Chinese government is so worked up and they're doing so many things to suppress the Hong Kong protests. And yet we're in our 11th week, probably 12th by the time this podcast comes out of protests in Hong Kong. Because the people in Hong Kong, like
1: they know they have a lot to lose, right? Yes. They have a lot to
0: lose. And if
1: this happens quietly, then every other thing that happens after this is a lot easier to do because they can just grab you and ship your ass out of there. Yes. And it's legal. So once that once this battle's over, it's all downhill. And I think there was kind of a hope that they would like tire themselves out and take a nap. Or maybe they would have infighting like Occupy. Maybe the Chinese people are like uh, calling us up on how to bust up movements like this. Because I don't think that they want... I mean, we're at the stage where there's triads and shit that's going over there fighting them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could break out a history book. But that's historically something that's been done uh, to left movements. And you can look at the history of Japan Mm post-war. There was a big socialist movement there. And, like, the government paid the Yakuza to go and, like... Start assassinating people and like roughing them up. But it remains to be seen whether that's going to be like, there's such a massive um, that I don't know if they can pull that off. You know what I mean?
0: Like, there has already been those thugs in white shirts. With, like, these sort of uniform, kind of, like, manufactured sticks, like, small clubs, whatever you want to call it, that, like, have been attacking the protesters and nobody knows where they come from. And it's, like, 99% chance they come from the Chinese government somehow. Like, these these people probably didn't just decide randomly to all dress the same, all carry the same weapons and, like, go beat up protesters randomly. Yeah. So the problem with the Hong Kong situation is that if China lets go of Hong Kong, then other provinces in China are going to demand independence, because a lot of China doesn't want to be China anymore. And there are parts of China that like, you know, are happy ish with the government as is and the society as is. But there are also parts China's very big, there are parts that are are they're ready to leave tomorrow. You know, we talk about like joke about in America, like Texas wanting to leave, they these guys are way more serious than any of that. Mm hmm. So if China lets go of Hong Kong, which they're not going to do, which they're probably not going (laughs) to do, well, unless they're forced to, unless they're forced to. But what would force them to just a popular uprising? Yeah. And like right now, I mean, this is kind of the 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 shitty situation, of course, but. Hong Kong does have a lot of support from the outside. A lot of Europe, you know, America, even Donald Trump came out and said, I support the Hong Kong protesters in some form.
2: If I remember right, he said he said it was a riot and that the Chinese could, if they wanted to, very easily handle it, which is a very Trumpian response. Yeah,
0: I mean, he kind of, you know, he tends to play both sides a lot. Yeah, yeah. Throw a bone to the popular movement, but then also, like, give a nod to the authoritarian regime that exists. Like, that's pretty Trump behavior. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But my point is just that, you know, there are a lot of kind of, quote unquote, Western influences that are watching the Hong Kong situation and saying, we support the people of Hong Kong having their own government. And of course, the reason that they do it again is because Hong Kong is this desirable door for the West into Asian trade markets that are otherwise maybe kind of unavailable or much harder to access. And so again that's kind of the that's kind of the the stickiness of the situation in effect is because the people that they're going to have to ask for support if they want to be independent of China are going to be some obviously shady world players whose own histories in this are bad.
1: Yeah, I haven't read anything that suggested the ultimate end game for the Hong Kong protesters is to be independent. I just think they would like the boot to be a little bit lighter. Yeah, you know, like even here in the United States, I mean, when we protest, it's not like overthrow the government, abolish the Senate.
2: Maybe swap out some steel toed boots for like some fur boots. I don't know. It's not that Hong Kong
0: wants to overthrow a government. They like the government that they have in Hong Kong. That's the problem. That's true. That's the problem. They have a government that they like, and they want it to continue to exist. And their concern right now is that in 25 years or so, it's a little bit more than that, but not by much, when this treaty runs out and China gets full control of Hong Kong, that they're just going to come in completely dissolve the chief executive of the city.
2: Because um, I, I think right now there's um, there's like a city parliament council kind of thing that's directly elected. And then there's a, a city executive, which is partially elected and partially appointed by China.
0: Well, ideally, it would be fully elected. But what China has been saying is they want to choose the candidates that can run, basically which is one of the, like, big things that people are protesting about right now, is stuff like that. Imagine if, like, you know, the Queen of England got to, like, decide whether or not our candidates for president over here were allowed to run or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the equivalent. So, you know, like... Terrifying, but not wrong.
2: Yeah. God... What do you think uh, President G would, would say about um, who should face off each other in, in, in this debate? I have, a fe- <laughs> I have a feeling it'd be like Gabbard versus, hmm.
0: He'd be all in on Delaney. Come on, you know this it. Already terrible. Mandatory national service?
2: Hmm, yeah. That's right up G's alley. Like D- D- Delaney, G- G- Gabbard Delaney ticket. Oh my God. <laughs> That's terrifying. Marxist, Leninist, malice Delaneyist thought.
0: No, no, just to kind of bring this full circle, damn it this Hong Kong shit, it's tied into a lot of the Chinese trade stuff that we're all aware of right now as well. And even like, we all need to be keeping an eye on this is basically kind of the moral here. And it's because not just of all the reasons that we've said so far, but also because the future of Hong Kong and the future of China, like if China just absorbs Hong Kong in like a big authoritarian move and becomes even more isolationist, that's going to affect us all. And, And it's It's tied into the political situation that we're already in with China.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. That's a very good take.
0: So keep. I I would say, you know, if you're listening to this and you've learned a little something and you think, wow, Hong Kong really is a politically interesting place. There's a lot more we could have gotten into, like a lot more.
1: This could have easily been like we did enough research to do a two hour episode. Oh, totally. You didn't want to drop Hong Kong the movie on people unless there's going to be like Some gunplay in it or some (laughs) white suits.
2: We're getting all uh, sleeping, sleeping dogs over here. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Clack, I get clacked on y'all.
0: Yeah, I would say if you're out there, you're listening, you think, wow, this is interesting. Like, keep your eye on it. It's probably going to stay interesting and very important to us. And you can bet your ass the people of Hong Kong know what's happened in our politics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: All right. Is there anything else you guys want to like quickly talk about? from uh, the news this week, or do we feel pretty well satisfied?
2: I've been trying to stay away from news, so I don't have too much to report. Is there anything you guys want to touch?
1: You're so smart. You have such good <laughs> mental capacity. I'd like you to save all of your rage for this show, really.
2: I've been spending my limited mental energy contemplating the QAnon implications of uh, Home Alone too. Fair enough.
0: You
1: used it well. You
0: used it well. I think that'll be a topic that comes up again in some form. Uh, We may literally do that Home Alone 2 watch-along track because that sounds like a really fun project. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Yeah, absolutely. We are not safe for wonks, and we appreciate you very much, our wonderful fans. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we haven't haven't visualized
2: anything in a while, and I think... Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. We we, we tried to make that bit a thing, but, like, yeah, we got to... We got to get, we got to get him rolling again. Yeah,
0: you know, sometimes, sometimes it's, we don't really necessarily have a clear vision, but I think this week.
2: Yeah, it wasn't a lack of visualization
1: power. Like on our end, it was really more of an editing thing. <laughs> we didn't really have like <laughs> our track selection thing together. So if you guys would like to do a, a meditation exercise, Kennedy, you <sighs> can definitely leave.
0: I just think with how difficult and questionable this whole situation is in Hong Kong, that we need to visualize something good happening there. I think we need to visualize. As always,
2: if you're driving, close your eyes, (laughs) steady your breath, focus on your breathing.
0: Take a moment to just cut out all distractions. If your partner is trying to talk to you about their day right now, be like, shut the fuck up. I do not need to hear it.
2: Just say to them, I'm visualizing Hong Kong. Okay, let's close our eyes. Yeah, yeah. Let's take let's, some let's, let's, all, let's all get in the mood for some visualization, positive visualization. And let's imagine Hong Kong. Sealed in a golden egg. Oh, I love the egg. I love the egg. You love to see it, folks. Praise the egg.
0: Angels surrounding them. And the people of Hong Kong, they're out there in the street and they're celebrating. And they're celebrating because they got their independence. And they were able to do it without completely pissing China off or completely selling themselves out to Western powers. And now, finally, Hong Kong can be its own nation. Neither death nor dishonor. Its own destiny. Neither death nor dishonor.
1: Uh President G, if you're listening, I do not endorse this statement. Um, but I am sending general good vibes to the people of Hong Kong. Of course.
2: <laughs> Pre- uh, President G, come on our show.
0: <laughs> yeah, President G, come on the sh- come
2: on the pod. S- s- slide in our slide into our DMs. We'll be receptive. Slide in the DMs, President G. That's right.
0: You know, maybe you've got a take about Hong Kong you can give us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that, this has been Not Safe
2: for Wonks. I'm Brandon Buchanan. Leia Rose. I'm Kennedy Cooper. Bye, bye. See ya.